0: Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new non-profit fiscal sponsor which allows us
1: to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available
0: only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the y make project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y makecom In episode 55
1: of the Why Make podcast, we talk with Mia Hall, a maker, former educator, and current executive director of the Penland School of Craft, one of the oldest and most prestigious craft schools in America.
0: After growing up in Sweden, Mia moved to Northern California at the age of 18 and explored for the next 10 years. When a close friend became a buyer for Pottery Barn, that possibility as a career excited Mia and she found a path forward through art school.
1: Eventually enrolling at San Diego State University in the Interior Design Department, Mia found her true passion upon discovering the Furniture Design Program,
0: where she earned both her undergraduate and graduate degrees. Always knowing that she wanted to teach, Mia became the first furniture instructor at the new crafts program at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. During her teaching time there, she also became the director of the program. In 2017, Mia became the executive director of Penland and took on the job she always really wanted to do,
1: morphing from a worker in wood to a worker in paper,
0: spreadsheets in particular. From Sweden to the mountains of North Carolina, join us as we talk with Mia Hall about her path in the arts and the future of craft education.
1: Welcome, Mia, welcome to the Why Make podcast. Thank you. And we are going to start the Why Make podcast the way we always do. If you've mm-hmm. listened to any of the podcasts, mm-hmm. which is, when was your first memory of actually making
2: something? Wow, um, I don't know that I can pull out the very first one, but I can kind of pull out the the clump of memories from from my childhood. Um, having grown up in Sweden, our education system is so different uh, because we had um, a class called home ec, which is, you know, I know something that's common here too, but there it was truly home knowledge was the the translation. And uh, each fall, the whole class had to knit their own gloves, big wool mittens. Um, we had to sew an apron. We had to, I think that was my first experience on a lathe. We had to learn how to turn a a base for a lamp. We had to learn how to wire a lamp, uh, change a tire. I remember being in the the parking lot changing a tire and um, it was did, just... Did
1: everybody take this class or just... Uh-huh. Okay, so it yeah, wasn't... It was mandatory. It was, right, because, I mean, historically, obviously, here, Home Act was just for women. Yeah. Men did not take it, but obviously... Yeah.
2: No, boys and girls all knitting together, and, and that was the beauty of it. And, yeah, I don't know that I could go back to knitting the gloves today, but it was just the idea of making something and making something with your hands and, and uh, I guess, being a little self-sufficient. And, uh, and that really continued for me. So whenever I wanted something that I couldn't have, I would try to figure out how to make it. And uh, um, the first time I did that was when my parents said I couldn't have this expensive down jacket. And then they went away for the weekend. So I pulled out my mom's sewing machine and made my own down jacket out of their feather pillows. And um, it was this probably 20 pound jacket. It was super heavy because I packed it full of feathers um, and uh, we had feathers in the whole house. But I loved that jacket, I wore it for years. You no,
1: know, actually, <laughs> actually, interesting enough, I had a very similar experience because I grew up, my mom was a maker. My mom was a, was a quilter and a sewer and she remade herself as an artist in her 50s. We made a down jacket too, and I remember the, 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 I guess it's, is it duck? What is down, is down mm-hmm. the duck feathers? Yeah, mm-hmm. the duck feathers were all over our yeah. dining room where my mom sewed. So, obviously the first thing that comes to mind growing up in Sweden is they have an amazing craft history. Mm-hmm. And obviously Scandinavian design, Scandinavian modern is known throughout the world was that an influence as a child, do you think? Do you think being around so many well-designed objects influenced your eventual path into furniture?
2: I don't know. Um, because for the first part of my life, it was just there. I didn't I didn't know that the furniture we lived with was special in any way. Um, it wasn't until much, much later when I started studying and I realized that the Scandinavian aesthetic is very different than than what I would see here in the United States um, I wasn't all that interested in art and design until a little later in life. I have this this story that I always tell my students when i back when I was teaching. I actually went to the Sistine Chapel when I was nineteen never looked up, so i've never seen the ceiling and uh, that um, I think it's kind of sacrilegious (laughs) considering what I'm doing today. So I think it was um, just an aesthetic that was embedded or imprinted um, because it's very much an aesthetic that I enjoy today. Um, If you were to see you know my own personal furniture and objects that I live with they're very very much you know Scandinavian in their overall aesthetic. So yeah I think it was just Imprinted early on.
1: Yeah, that was actually because I grew up in a house that was filled with Scandinavian furniture, and, uh, the seven chair, the. Although it was interesting, I was oh, yeah. I was uh, <laughs> I was preparing for this conversation. I I I uh, Googled famous Swedish designers, free, fra- Swedish furniture designers, and everyone came up was either a Finn, uh, <laughs> Danish, <laughs> or uh, or IKEA. Uh
2: huh. Yeah. Well, we do we do have a few.
1: So. Yeah. You moved to California, mm-hmm. Southern California.
2: Um, no, Northern, Northern California. California. Yeah,
1: as a, as a right out of high
2: school. Um, yes, um, I I was I was outside of Berkeley for a while and traveled a lot. I did that for ten years out of high school or gymnasium as we call it in, right. in Sweden. Um, eventually, met someone who I became very close with who was a buyer for Pottery Barn, and I thought. What a dream job, you know, working with objects, um, deciding what's going to go into the stores, uh, and I thought that's what I want to do. Uh, and he told me that, well, you got to go to college, and you got to go to college here, go to art school. That that would be a, that would be a good path. So that's what I decided to do, and I started at City College in San Francisco, um, took a couple of semesters, and then transferred down to San Diego State but I had decided to study interior design because that was the closest related to design that I could think of. I wasn't really interested in designing objects. It was the, it was the buying part that I was so fascinated with, the, the traveling and, and just, just finding objects all over the world. That's how I ended up at San Diego State.
1: Right, very fortuitously. Mm-hmm. Because, very much so. well, I'm not gonna lead you, <laughs> carry on.
2: Yes, I, uh, I was in the interior design program for um, maybe a full year, I think it was a full year, and I was taking the classes and, you know, all the hand drafting and building little models, and, and finally one of the teachers pulled me aside and said, your models are so good. Have you thought about maybe going into product design instead? Uh, you, you don't seem to really be into the interior design part. Um, but you should consider design. And he said, have you considered furniture design here at San Diego State? And, and I told him that I had, but you know, I like everybody else trying to make a direct path between education and making a living. And I, I just, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see how. How I could possibly make a living building things, and he said, "Well, you know, these things they they work themselves out. So why don't you why don't you go downstairs and meet the furniture folks?" That's how I ended up in the in the furniture design program. Um, I didn't meet Wendy Moriyama right away because she was she was out for the summer. So I had my very first class with uh, another maker named Sean Goodell, and it was. I think it was one of those pivotal moments in my life. Um, you now, I was almost 30 years old, and it was a transformational experience. I just finally found that this is what I was supposed to do. I just derived so much joy and happiness out of, out of making things, making, making objects, and, and just being able to, to take the ideas and, and transform them with my own hands. Um, you know, something that I had tried to do so long with, with clothing, you know, altering things that already existed, and now I got to do it from scratch. And uh, it, was, it was incredibly powerful.
1: Right, and then you got to meet the amazing, mm-hmm. the wonderful, the incredible, and every other superlative. I yes. mean, I, it was kind of amazing, because I've been wowed by Wendy since day one of, of my woodworking career. Yeah. And just how inventive and just how... I mean, seizingly endless her ideas are. And yeah. it's kind of curious because we just finished a conversation with Kim Winkle and she started uh, at, at San Diego State in the in the pottery program, mm-hmm. in the ceramics program. And it's the same thing. Somebody said, well, you, your work looks really more like furniture and the ideas you're in, you should go talk with Wendy.
2: Yeah. And I remember that because... Because Kim started to come upstairs to the wood studio when I was in that very first class. Oh. So, so in the fall, when I started in the undergraduate program, Kim started in the graduate program. So I overlapped with her the whole time she was there. In the furniture world, there is, there's usually a direct line back to Wendy Mariamma. You know, this whole six degrees of separation, that doesn't exist. You get maybe one if you're lucky. Uh, everything. Everything leads back to Wendy Well, Marama Wendy somehow. and then
1: Wendell, of Wendell course. Castle. Yeah, because I think of both my teachers were both Wayne Rab and Chris Wyland. Both were RIT. Yeah, and they can they can they can link their past back to Wendell, and everybody else is Wendy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so what did what did your early work look like? What were you exploring early on as as an undergraduate? And, and then on, cause you did your graduate work there as well, right?
2: I did. Um, the, the furniture program at San Diego State, um, the undergraduate program was good, but it's, but it was only a BA program. So I could actually graduate with only three classes in furniture. Um, it was, uh, it wasn't a program in furniture design. It was uh, an applied design program. So, lucky for me, I also had to take textiles and ceramics and metals. So I got to meet some really, really phenomenal teachers at San Diego State and got to try a lot of different things. But I only had a couple of classes with Wendy. So I only really had a full year with her. That first year, I mean, it was really just about learning how to make things and and things were still fairly Scandinavian um, with just a a little bit of surface decoration, trying trying out some color. Um, there was nothing too remarkable that came out of those two two uh, intro classes. But then when it was time to graduate, I you know I moved back to San Francisco and and uh, interviewed for a couple of jobs at what was gonna be West Elm. They were just you know founding West Elm, and and I was the whole time thinking i don't i don't know that i want to do this anymore that dream had sort so of faded so sort of or less
1: going back to the idea of being a buyer for pottery barn only was west elm
2: <laughs> yeah and that didn't that just didn't do it for me at all anymore and and i really wanted to go back to school i really wanted to continue with wendy i felt like i had had not even scratched the surface and started to look at graduate schools and and I moved back down to San Diego and did a, a post year with, with Wendy and, and asked her, what do you think about me applying to the graduate program? And, and she luckily said yes, and I was accepted. I know people always say you should never go to graduate school at the same place you went and you did your undergraduate studies. But I was, I was barely with Wendy during my undergraduate years. So it wasn't really until I started graduate school I felt like I got to really get to know her and, and really study with her. And then in contrast to their undergraduate program, their graduate program is really robust because back then it was really unusual for people to finish in three years. So most people stre- stretched it out into three and a half or even four years, which is unusual. Most MFA programs are now two years. So it was, it was really wonderful and she had a big group those those years she had there were 10 of us um so to get to know some of the makers um yuri kobayashi was there Matt oh Hatton, yuri was there oh god mm-hmm, yep oh jason schneider right gory robinson yeah. um christine lee chris lee was right. there i mean it was it was just an, an amazing group of makers uh and uh, and of course studying with wendy and at that time i think i am Correct in the fact that you could only study at two places in the United States if you wanted to study with women, and that was Wendy and Roseanne uh, at Bristy. So I really, I really wanted to stay uh, with Wendy in in San Diego. So I did.
1: Rob used to correct me as the saying that I shouldn't refer to people as being Wendy disciples, <laughs> uh, and he's probably correct. You're. You and Jason and Kim you're not Wendy disciples, but I imagine she had a profound influence on your work
2: oh absolutely absolutely I mean to the point where I had to really try to to consciously not emulate her uh, I was just so drawn to her work and you know to her to her colors her textures her forms and it's something, even even to this, this day when I occasionally go back to the wood shop, those shapes find their way back into my own work. Um, there's, there's just something so strong and so free about her asymmetry um, and the way, the way she's putting shapes and forms together that, to me, um, is just so perfectly, balanced i can't tell you why it's just that that feeling you get in the middle of your stomach when you see something and it's just right and that's how i always felt about about wendy's work
1: although i imagine i'm trying to imagine being in a wendy critique and some of your work looks wendy derivative i imagine it wouldn't go over well
2: no not at all (laughs) (laughs) not not at all no i think wendy was was very very good at pushing people both away from her and and away from their own comfort zones. So about halfway through graduate school I started uh, working more with narrative and storytelling Um, even though everything was still based in furniture forms there was definitely more more concept and, and more of a cohesive story and the body of work that I presented at the end of my, my MFA, and it was um, very much a, a comment on, um, you know, feminism and being a woman in a man's dominated world and, and in a field that, that is um, now very open and welcoming of women, but it hasn't always been the case.
1: Um, no, I've certainly seen that through the progression of my 35 years in the field. Yeah. Being a part of the predominantly um, middle aged white men that Mm -hmm. uh, occupied the field
0: historically.
2: Yeah. But if you look in in the big programs, um, and through my 15 years of teaching, I taught mostly women, uh, mostly young women coming through my classes. Um, So I think that 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 was something that was slowly changing. Um, and, uh, there's so many phenomenal female makers.
1: I made the comment to Wendy that she was the first person to, first woman to graduate from RIT with an MFA. Oh, that's nothing. I can't even believe that's even a thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. She was, she was really great at making us find our voices and, and through a, a pretty strenuous, process because there was a lot of pushing, pushing, pushing uh, until, until you found it. And yet she has been so, so very supportive. I mean, I've seen Wendy go out of her way to support her students and help us get into the careers we're in, we're in today. Um, I mean, had it not been for Wendy's connections and Wendy's strong letters of recommendation, I never would have gotten that first teaching job and, and uh, so she has, she has really, you know, used her influence to push her disciples out in the world, if we're going to call them Wendy disciples.
1: Um, I'm going to let you do that, I won't do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, looking at when she retired and we all got together and we started looking at where people were out in the country and, and what they were doing. It was really phenomenal to see how many were still active. Um, I think almost everyone was still in the creative sector somewhere. And that's a that's a pretty good statistic.
1: And lots of them leading programs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Kim Winkle and Jason Snyder certainly.
2: Yep, Matt um, Hutton. I'm
1: sure uh, Corey Robinson. Corey Robinson, right? Yes. And
2: Jennifer Anderson out in California.
1: Yeah. So Personally, I, you know, I really discovered my own voice as a woodworker when I started to discover narrative, when I started to really begin to work with narrative as an element in furniture. Mm-hmm. And it's such a powerful part of enlarging the possibility of these things we think of as functional objects. Where did you go with it? What were, who were your influences?
2: I think I went into it kicking and screaming because I really, really just wanted to make furniture, functional furniture. And and for a long time in graduate school, Wendy was okay with that. Um, The overall program was not as comfortable with just functional objects. Um, There was always a little bit of a push to do more, say more, and uh, work a little bit more conceptually. So, I started introducing um, a little bit more narrative into my work. It was still very much functional. And after, right after graduate school, when I was when I let go of function altogether, because I, f- I, f- I personally felt that I could never find that perfect meeting place between narrative and function that I created objects that had such a personal story that they couldn't really be used by other people. And as a result, I still own all of that work because it was, it was just too personal. So it was, it was a bridge I couldn't cross myself. So after graduate school, I realized that I really loved the idea of telling the story, but I needed to let go of the function and so I pretty much stopped making furniture until much, much later when I discovered concrete and, and functional furniture came back into my life. But for, for a good seven or eight years, um, I made primarily sculpture.
1: I think a lot of what draws us to functional objects is that they exist in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. They are, it's not something that exists on the wall. It's something you interact with. And that is the draw to making functional items. Yeah. It's also the draw back to making functional items, because sometimes when you're trying to express more than that, you feel like you're superimposing a function on something. Mm-hmm. You know, is like, is, is this thing still maintained its tabledness, even though it's only two inches wide and really uh, <laughs> could yeah. fall over at a moment's notice, or you know, I. I I remember uh, I was into making a whole series of torso cabinets but they were only m- marginally cabinets. They yeah. didn't really have much in the way of functional space but they were like they were covered in, in pictures from my childhood and I only ever sold one of them and the woman made a point of telling me that she was going to store the toilet paper for her kids bathroom in it. <laughs> it was like Geez, I wish I wouldn't have given it any function at all, because I'm not—I'm not so happy with the idea of it storing toilet paper. But hey, give me the three thousand bucks and I'll move on.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's the—that's the thing um, that I—I I started feeling uncomfortable with was so heavily prescribing how someone should use a piece that I have made had made. I—I—I I, I felt much more comfortable with having just a functional piece that people could use however they wanted or just take function out of it altogether and use the furniture construction, but call it a sculpture. So right after graduate school, I did a residency up in Oregon at the Oregon College of Art and Craft, uh, which has since shut down, which is very, very sad because it was a wonderful little school in an old apple orchard um, just right outside of Portland. Um, and when I was there they had less than 200 students but it was a full-on craft program and it was it was an extraordinary place. I had laid out a, a project that I was going to do and I finished that project pretty early on and, and started working with basically scrap wood um, and started making what I have always called little cabinets but they're completely non-functional. They're just very sculptural. Uh, Some of them are just very small, like 8 to 12 inches tall and very shaped, lots of color and texture. And they have long, long, long handles. Sometimes a little 12-inch cabinet will have a three-foot handle. Um, And you open them up and there's image transfer on the inside and some small objects that I've collected. So I have absolutely dictated the the use of the, this little cabinet in the opening is often just like a two-by-two two opening. Um, and I still make them. It's about the only thing I, I still make because they're they're fairly quick. Um, they're very intuitive. It's just about colors and shapes and imagery and, and how it all fits together. And that was something that, that started to happen at that residency.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's also funny to hear you talk about uh, image transfer because I think there are so many universal languages in woodwork, and we all discover them and make them our own, yet we're all discovering them collectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the first time I did a piece with Image Transfer, and I was like, oh my god. I've never thought of this before. This is wonderful, and then you realize, of course, everybody's doing everybody's
2: it. everybody's doing it. Yeah, this was back in two thousand five, two thousand six.
1: That's exactly when I was doing it.
2: Yep, and uh, I uh, I figured out how to do it uh, by talking to Jenna Goldberg. Um, oh, so so she was she was one of the first who who was actively showing um, at least me how to do it, and then and then of course you know over the last almost twenty years I've been been tweaking it here and doing a little little bit different there and, and coming up with my own way of, of doing it.
1: At what point do you go to the University of Arkansas and start teaching there? Is that shortly thereafter? or
2: Yeah, it was. Um, I came back down to San Diego after um, a semester in Oregon to uh, wait for my partner to finish up. I had met David Clemens, uh, who is a phenomenal metalsmith and he was going through. Uh, Helen Shirk's program at at San Diego State. So he finished up in 2006, 2007, 2006, because he did the same residency in Portland that I did. So during that time, I waited in San Diego, and, and I actually taught at San Diego State, taught the intro to woodworking class. I felt like I had come full circle. You know, I had taken the class, I'd been part of Wendy's program, and then as the the sort of capstone experience, I got to teach the class um, before I moved on. Um, But uh, yeah, there were a number of jobs that came available um, during that spring, and I applied for whatever was out there. The job in Arkansas came up really late in the the season, which I thought was a little odd, because I, I interviewed in July down in Little Rock, and typically you interview in February, March for ac- academic positions, um, but I flew down and Arkansas was, was certainly something else in terms of the heat, um, but the program was really wonderful. And when I realized that it was a brand new program, they had just taught a couple of furniture classes in, in a new shop. It was a new craft program. It was a, uh, an applied design program, and I was going to be the first full-time professor there so i was I was ecstatic, and uh, we both moved down to to Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: Did you always know you wanted to teach? Yeah Did, okay, so you you never thought of the full time starving artist as being a as a a gig
2: No, no <laughs> I think I decided that I wanted to teach uh it was it was not Wendy was definitely a big part of that, but it was the class I had before I had Wendy's class where. It was, a, it was a contemporary crafts class where we learned a bunch of different uh, different things in in one semester, and and um, the instructor was so good, and and I kept thinking this is this is what I want to do. I I really want to teach, and so going into the graduate program eventually with Wendy, I did it so that I could eventually teach. I didn't think so much about I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on my own and. Set up a studio and make furniture. It was it was really the teaching part that attracted me. So I taught as much as I could during graduate school, and then and then of course went after the academic positions right after graduate school. Right.
1: So you cr- you created the whole program at the University of Arkansas. It
2: was it had been created and had been approved as an applied design program. Um, so there was a curriculum when I came in and they had a ceramics professor uh, and they had a uh, yeah they had a, a weaving instructor as well but because it was so new i I could really mold it into what I wanted it to be uh, and and it was it was incredible it was you know ten really wonderful years of of um, just getting to know a lot of people and building this program and, and um, eventually really getting to know the Wingate Foundation. And when, when they supported um, a new building, you know, I got to be part of designing a whole new art facility. Yeah. So
1: you eventually become director of that program, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I, uh, very, very early on, I realized that I wanted to be... be part of not just teaching, but, but building the program. There is, um, the craft education at the American University is um, not as effective as it could be. Uh, and my frustration was always, the students would come in, they would unpack, they would get started on something, and then it was time to go. And this happened twice a week, and it was hard to get them to come in between classes. So even the most talented students, I just didn't have them for enough hours in the week. And then David and I would always encourage them to go to Pendleton, go to Aramont, go to Anderson Ranch, go to Haystack in the summer. And they would come home and they had made just as much work in two weeks as they would do at home for a whole semester. So I got really, really interested in this idea of the deep immersion pedagogy and that 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 learning Model and, and we tried some classes like that during the summer, and that was by far my, my favorite way of teaching was, was when I had the students all day for a full month, and, and uh, we could just get so much work done. And, and I could just see a whole different side of the students when they finally relaxed. They didn't have to run out for math class or get a paper in or off to work or something like that. They relaxed and, and really connected with their creativity, and and this this full immersion is so much more powerful than than this just scratching the surface twice a week.
1: We're jumping the gun a little bit here because mm-hmm. I do want to talk about craft education, mm-hmm. but so eventually you move from the standard academic kind of program like San Diego State and and Wisconsin to mm-hmm. something like Penland. Do you? F- Do you think that academic craft programs are fundamentally flawed because of that? Yes. And obviously, you think there's a way to fix that or?
2: Mm, Sadly, no, not without completely changing the way education works in this country. Um, So comparing it to, to Sweden, for example, you cannot go to the university and study furniture design or ceramics or anything like that. In um, Sweden? In Sweden. Um, because they have decided to, to separate the arts from these more traditional academic programs and they have created art schools. So students go to art school and they fully concentrate and, and immerse themselves into an arts education. And I just see that working so much better. Over there, they they consider uh, kindergarten through ninth grade. That's when you receive your 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 foundation education. You know, you learn to right. read and write your own language and two or three other languages, math, social science, history, everything. And then when you leave ninth grade, you start to specialize and you go into a broad area. Like I went into economics was my direction, and I did that for a couple of years. So you're starting to get a sense of what it is you want to do. Maybe maybe you want to you want to be an engineer and then you go into engineering. So so they start to to specialize early on. By the time you're finished with gymnasium, which is typically high school here, you go to the university, then you just specialize. You don't have a core curriculum. You don't go back and do algebra or u.s history or that has been taken care of already so that's when you go to law school or med school or or you you specialize and you go for a really deep dive so had i been in sweden at at age 18 i would have gone for that deep dive into an art school and of course yes they do have art history classes and and the classes that are connected to to the arts but it's predominantly in your chosen area of study. My, my frustration with the academic programs here was that I felt that I always, I had to fight for my own students' time. If I had a student for a full four years, and, and, and of course today it's rare that students finish in four years, it's more like five or six... And they're majoring in furniture design. It's rare that they take more than six classes. Six classes in four or five or six years in their major. In furniture design. Right. And But, but they've, they've now spent four or five or six years in school. And that was my frustration. Was right. that I just didn't. I didn't get to have them enough. I wanted them to, to have that really deep dive, that, the full immersion that I keep talking about. And, and now, having come out to Penland and working with a totally different teaching pedagogy, a totally different learning model, I can, I can definitely compare the two and I can tell you how powerful this model is and, and how... If we could move our educational system towards more specialization and this this deeper immersion, um, I think we would learn a whole lot more. Um, however, it only works for the person who who knows what they're going to do and who wants to to really really focus on that. It, it doesn't necessarily work for the person who Eventually, we'll say, okay, my degree was fine, but I want something completely different.
1: I think the big question I want to ask, and that I don't know the answer to myself at all, is what is the future of craft education? Mm -hmm. Where is it going, and where does it need to go?
2: I have to be hopeful, because it is such an important part of society that we teach people how to make objects. Obviously, we have to teach people how to be designers and how to be makers because otherwise there would be no objects. There would be no well-designed cars. There would be no you know, functioning shoes and clothes and plates and, and furniture. So it, it is a necessity for our society to continue and to evolve to actually teach people how to make and how to, how to design.
1: But is that industrial design? Or is that making at its basic, like mm-hmm. here, where we're not necessarily making functional objects as we've discussed?
2: Yeah, I don't know that I separate the two because I feel that the strongest designer has to know how to make the object they're designing. If you don't understand the ergonomics of a chair, you can't you can't design a chair. Um, so. I think industrial design has to be coupled with making. You know, if you're going to if you're going to design dinnerware, you have to know how to throw a plate or how to cast a plate or how it all works in order for you to be be a successful designer. At least I think that those are the best designers who, who really know how materials work. Uh, and especially when we get into finicky materials like wood, there's one thing to design the object, but if you don't understand how wood moves and how it takes on a life of its own over the seasons, you know, you're never gonna be very successful at it. So, so I think the two have to be combined. We have to continue to, to teach people how to make things. And, and it, it's, it's really sad to see how it has disappeared from public schools. You know, and it it really, it kind of scares me that not just art classes, but of course, you know, classes that are connected to making, you know, what public school has a ceramics program these days? I mean, it's it's all, it's disappeared. I mean, wood shops are gone because they're way too dangerous. And these students, you know, they graduate and they've never made a thing in their life. And, And of course, I worry because if you have never made anything, how how do you know what you're missing? How do you know that you need to come to Penland and take a class when you don't know what it is? You've never touched clay and made it work. You've never hammered, you know, red hot metal and made it move. If you've never touched it, how do you know what you're missing? So I am I am very, very sad to see all of these craft programs disappear from elementary schools and more and more from high schools and now seeing how many craft programs are being shut down at universities, the question then is where? Where are we gonna where are we gonna do this? Where are we gonna teach people how to make and, and, and show people how important it is how to know how to make things and and how empowering it is to to work with materials and, and to make objects and, and just how important it is to have that in your life.
1: I mean, now we're talking to the more, even the more difficult issue of virtual reality has replaced uh-huh. so much of making. Instead of knowing materials, you know a keyboard and a screen, uh-huh. and it's a poor facsimile for actually making something with your hands. But I won't discredit it as not making. It's just uh, they're just not tangible objects. Yeah, they're they're still things, but they're virtual things. Yeah. Being an old guy, I have a hard time wrapping my head around making a virtual piece of furniture.
2: Yeah, I mean, technology certainly has its place in the in the craft world, and and makers that have really, really embraced um, technology, you know, lasers and CNC and three D printers. And the important part there is that the technology has not substituted the hand. There is the technology has its place and then the hand has its place. So I don't think technology is going gonna, gonna to take over the craft world and, and, and render craft schools obsolete. But it's really interesting to see how technology has come in as another tool and has really pushed the field into a new and exciting direction.
1: Right. I think that is fascinating. I mean, I just view technology as just another hammer. Mm-hmm. It's just... but. The the idea of virtual reality taking over making, I think that's a a far different issue in terms of the whole, I don't know, the possible future of making. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know the answer to what the future of making is. I mean, can university craft programs survive? Can places like Penland survive? And I I don't know the future of that. Mm -hmm. I know I personally have always been, I think of making as a disease Mm -hmm. that you're compelled to do it.
2: I think it's nourishment
1: but uh, how do we continue to spread that nourishment yeah and and then of course what institutions academic institutions and places like um Penland how do they plan to do that and then I will also rear the ugly head of the lack of diversity Mm-hmm. In the making world, and and how we address that, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that don't get that opportunity, yeah. Because unfortunately, the way our society is set up. So, what are your, what are your thoughts on on how we change that, and what's Penland's role in that, and and Penland's role in the future of craft education?
2: Yeah, that is, it's such a great question, it's such an important question. You know, how do we, how do we make. A place like Penland, um, accessible to more people. The craft world isn't just white. It's just that we have chosen to only highlight a small segment of the craft world, and and it is, it is something that um, I think there's a lot of people trying to, to correct that um, omission right now. There's a lot of very good writers out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of curators that are, are trying to find the makers that have been dismissed for such a long time. And um, um, it's, a, it's a slow process, but it's very, uh, it's very encouraging to see that it is happening. Um, of course, I think we all wish that it could happen faster, but it is happening. When you start to look around, I mean, craft exists in every culture. Uh, we just haven't we haven't embraced those cultures. We haven't embraced those makers. We haven't invited them into our spaces yet. And that is something that we have slowly and carefully looked at here at Penland. Uh, we absolutely want to open our doors to a wider audience, and we needed to figure out how to do that, because just to open the doors and say, hey, welcome, we want you here, it's just not enough. We have to figure out why is it that we haven't seen those people at places like Penland? What are the barriers? So we've spent years just talking to people, trying to figure out what are the barriers. So Penland is located in western North Carolina, up in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, It is a very non-diverse area of the country. I think Mitchell County has something like 95% white population. So it's not necessarily a place that people of color naturally say, let's go there. There's always going to be the question, will I be supported? Will I be welcome? Will I be safe? So that's the first obstacle. How How do you tell someone that, yes, you will be supported, you will be welcome. you will be safe. I can't guarantee that because I can only hope that that's true on the Penland campus. And then, you know, we have to look at what does it take to, to get here? What does it take to actually take a class at Penland? Penland's not cheap. It costs a lot of money to run this big operation. So in order to bring more people here, we have to make accessible at, at a lower rate. At, we have to create scholarships. we have to create opportunities. So currently we have about 50% of our students are here uh, on some type of financial aid and we're actively trying to increase the funding so that we can offer even more opportunities. We had to go back and look at how do we do things. So a simple thing like a, a scholarship application. It used to be that, first of all, it's $50 to apply. So $50, it might not be a lot of money, you know, for one application. But let's say you want to apply to four or five summer programs. That's $200, 250 That's a lot of money. So that was the first thing we had to do was to to remove the $50 application fee. Um, and then looking at the the application itself, well, there were a lot of Questions. There's a lot of writing involved, uh, and then images. You had to show, you know, five to seven images of your work. That's not easy to do if you don't have access to a professional photographer. So let's try to remove that. Uh, and then three letters of recommendation. Well, that's not easy to get if, even if you're in academia and you have three teachers you can ask, but not everybody has three teachers. Who's willing to sit down and and write uh, a letter of recommendation? So we removed that. Then with that, we also sat down and said, what are we trying to achieve? What is it we want to do with the scholarship program? Who are we trying to open our doors for? And we were very clear in saying that this is an equity initiative. This is to, to bring people here who have traditionally been marginalized in the craft field and from Penland. And then along with that, we created a scoring rubric, so the people who are reviewing our uh, scholarship applications, and we get about 1,200 applications a year, so it's it's quite a feat to review all of these applications. They're very clear in how they're scoring these, these applications. And as a result, we have really seen the needle move in terms of who is here. People are not going to be interested in coming here and studying here unless they can see themselves in the instructor pool. So that is another very, very important component: is to reach a really broad and diverse group of makers who are willing to come here and teach. That has taken a lot of work and a lot of relationship building because you can't just call people and say, "Hey, do you want to do you want to come and teach at Pennland?" You need to to, to start with a relationship and figure out, you know, do you want to teach here? Do you have the ability to teach here? And and for us to to explain why, why do we want you to come and teach here? And this happens at the same time as every other craft organization in the country is trying to do the same thing. So we knew that that this is not a short Term fixed. It's not a quick fix. This is thing you have to be in it for the for the long game. Here we have to set a goal that is maybe 10 years out, and slowly work towards towards that goal. We have a program um, that we started four years ago, and it's the HBCU Craft Tour, where we work with three to four different HBCUs each year, and they identify students that are interested in coming to Penland and seeing what we're all about. And they come up here and spend a couple of days and we show them what what Penland is all about, what a craft school is all about, and what this experience is all about. We, uh, we bring in a couple of mentors and, and it's important to us that those are makers of color. Uh, and uh, And then we have scholarships that follow along um, that are specifically for people who, who came through that tour. We're slowly starting to see that people who came on the HBCU tour are starting to come back. So it's, you know, it's one person at a time. It's, it's not, it, it isn't a quick fix, but for, for each person we have a relationship with, we're just, we're one person closer to a more diverse campus. It's also difficult to to do this work when we're a group of primarily white people. We have to reach out and, and talk Talk to other makers and see how do we make these adjustments? What are the barriers to inclusion and and what is important to you? What do we how do we need to change?
1: Well, it'd be kind of naive to believe there would be a quick fix after, you know, hundreds of years. years. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hundreds of years of exclusion to think that you're gonna flip a switch and all of a sudden create a diverse community out of a not so diverse community.
2: Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, we don't deserve that. It's hundreds of years of exclusion. We don't deserve to just have the problem fixed overnight.
1: When you're talking, and it's the thing that struck me. And I'm sure people have suggested this, and Penland needs its branch campuses.
2: And, uh, and that comes up. It, it, it does come up quite often. You know, should, should we have a Penland out west? Should we have a Penland, an urban Penland? To me, Penland is so much of a place. The magic of Penland happens here. And it's it's the perfect combination of the instructor, you know, the studios, the mountains, the the environment, the The isolation. The isolation. And that all comes together and that becomes Penland. If you remove one of those things, it doesn't work anymore. There are other equally wonderful places. There's there's no lack of of craft schools like like ours, um, I don't know that Penland needs to have more campuses. There are other campuses. Um, I would like to figure out how to make make Penland accessible to to more people.
1: And that would be a wonderful thing. Ultimately, where the sustainability of craft education lies. Yes. As, as you've certainly alluded to, it, an education of the hands is as important as an education of the minds, and mm-hmm. it's. It's hard to uh, future going forward that doesn't involve both. And so in wrapping up, I mean really my final question on a somewhat lighter note is do you, how do you manage still making and doing all this? or how do you how do you maintain a balance as a maker and being an administrator? and do you still teach somewhat or?
2: I don't teach. You don't um, teach? No. Um, and uh, I like to, to tell people that my studio practice has more morphed in from wood to paper, spreadsheets mostly. Um, oh. Numerology. And <laughs> yeah. I, uh, um I don't make much anymore. I mean, I, I, I go to the studio once in a while, I make a piece or two a year. Um, Do you miss it? I don't. And I know that that is so shocking to people. No, Um, I
1: mean, it's not shocking at all. I mean, obviously, um, I've left my studio because I feel motivated by sitting and talking with you and and exploring ideas other than the dusty ideas in my shop. Um, So people change. Ideas change. Motivations change. That's entirely understandable.
2: Yeah. And, and I find that being sort of behind the scenes and, and um, being part of a, a really phenomenal team that makes this happen year in and year out is um, so gratifying. You know, walking through the studios when we have, you know, 14, 15, 16 classes going and you're walking from the glass studio into the wood studio and down to the iron studio and, and then into you know, the quieter and less sweaty studios where people are knitting or printing or painting. It's, it's incredible. And, and you just see the, the quiet hum of creativity and this, this deep focus that, that people have and, and hearing the, the stories of just transformation, that happens when, when people can focus so fully and deeply for a, a period of time. Um, that is as good as cutting the perfect dovetail. You know, it's, it's the same kind of satisfaction. This job was really, it's really what I always wanted to do. I just didn't know it until it showed up right in front of me. And, and, uh, and I always thought I was going to keep a, a studio going because I've, I've been a maker for for such a long time uh and then slowly it just kind of stopped and and i'm still perfectly happy
1: oh great well that seems like a, a wonderful place to wrap it up thank you mia hall for being a part of the why make podcast and
2: why make thank you it was my pleasure being here and talking to you
1: you can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can
0: also grab our RSS feed or a direct download from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Why Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make Pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.